good to see everyone here this morning. Um, there is some glitter on the floor. That was from something that someone else had. It is not in celebration of Palm Sunday. We picked some of it up, uh, but uh, that would be uh, interesting if we did that. Anyway, um, for those of you who, I think most of you know me, I'm John, um, uh, executive director here. Uh, we're at the beginning of what's commonly referred to as, uh, as Holy Week. Uh, and this week are, are the events starting from, from this Sunday uh, to next Sunday. And it begins with the triumphal entry of Christ uh, into Jerusalem, and uh, what is often referred to as, as Palm Sunday, uh, and to his multiple encounters with the religious hierarchy and some of the discourses he has with them, some of the private discussions he has with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion, uh, the plot that, uh, for him to be killed, his arrest, the multiple beatings and, and, and trials that he has, and then ultimately his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. So there's a lot that really happens during this week. But we all started off with this Palm Sunday. And I was thinking about a lot about Palm Sunday as, as I knew that I was going to preach this week. And in my 40 years of going to church, a couple of those I probably don't remember real well, but 40 years uh, of age, uh, several things that stand out to me no matter what church I've been in. And so I grew up in a Free Will Baptist church, and now I'm in a PCA church. So I've been in a wide variety of, uh, of, of churches and, and things. Um, but, a lot, but there's been a lot of things in common from different churches as, as I've thought about that. And I want to say that none of these are necessarily good or bad. They're just, they're just things that stand out to me as memories. And whether, and the first of those is all the songs have a lot of hosannas. Whether it's a great hymns of the faith that you have in the, in the, in the uh, pew in front of you, or whether it's uh, the best female singer singing the newest Hillsong version of Hosanna over and over and over again, uh, the songs have a lot of Hosannas. Um, second, uh, usually someone giving an announcement, it's an assistant pastor or the, or the music pastor or someone, uh, gets up and tries to give an explanation of the origins of Hosanna. Um, it's their kind of moment to shine. A lot of times they're, they're wrong on it, but anyway, they, they, they do give it their best. Third is, is sanctuary decor. Uh, we're, we're minimal sanctuary decor here. Um, but, uh, there's always, some people have palms in this elegantly decorated stage. And I think that's nice. I mean, I, I like looking at nicely decorated stages. Uh, but sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll even give palm branches to kids, which is rather, rather dangerous. And the kids will lay down, like, their coats and wave palm branches, and it's the only time in church where you get to, like, jump and shout and yell, and, you know, they yell, Hosanna to the Son of David and all this, all this type of stuff. Um, I've never been in a church that had a donkey, though. Um, I, it, Rachel seems like she has. I, I, would, I, would, I would like to have been in a church with a donkey. Uh, I just have never had that opportunity. But I did see a clip uh, from a church that I went to previously uh, last year. Uh, they had a guy go around to the children's classrooms, and he dressed up in a donkey costume. <laughs> and so he was crawling through these kids with their palm branches and kind of bucking and making donkey-type noises. Um, and I thought, that's just kind of weird. Um, so I don't know that that really taught much about it, but it just seemed kind of weird to me. Um, we did turn down the uh, opportunity to buy uh, palm branches. I saw that Tipton and Hearst up in the Heights had them for sale. Decided we'd, we'd, we'd pass on that today. So, um, and, but then the last thing, there's always some kind of phrase 
usually used multiple times in the week that the same crowd that cheered Jesus and celebrated him on Sunday was the same crowd that called for his crucifixion on Friday. And that's not quite true, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But I just want to say, we failed you miserably on all the things that usually happen on Palm Sunday. Uh, I don't think we've had a song with Hosanna this morning, and we definitely are bereft of uh, palm branches up here on the stage. So uh, if we've disappointed you, uh, I'm kind of sorry. But um, as I've thought about Palm Sunday this year, it's really taken on a different focus for me because we always focus on the palms. We focus on the pomp of this, this triumphal entry of Christ. We focus on the praise and, and, and the words that are said. We focus on the people in the crowd. We focus on the prophecy that's written there. And all of these are in the passage, and they're good and they're necessary for understanding what's happening. But we miss the most important thing of all in the middle of all of this. And we miss what most of the gospel writers are doing, and especially Matthew, who's painting a portrait of a man that's being drawn through these words in the midst of all of these other things. And if I had to give a title to my message this morning, it would be the portrait of a king. A portrait of a king based on this triumphal entry. And our text is in your bulletin, or if you want to turn to your Bible this morning, our text is Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Let's hear God's word as it's read. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you. Immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. On a, coal, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is Je the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So to kind of set where we were, Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem for what would be his final Passover, but the one in which he would be the final sacrifice of his life on the cross for us. And he was coming from Jericho, and we know this from chapter 20, as he healed two blind men on the side of the road at the very end of chapter 20. Now, the road that goes from Jericho to Jerusalem is about 17 miles, and they would go up the side of the Mount of Olives about 3,000 feet. And if we put this with John's gospel, we read that they stopped to visit Mary and Martha and Lazarus that lived in Bethany, and they stayed there a few days. And there's still a little bit of mystery today about where the exact location of Bethphage was, although the Franciscans have built a church there and claim that they have it, but archaeologically, we still don't know. But it was known as the House of Figs, and we know it was very near Bethany, which was on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. And one of the things that was important about it, it was one sabbatical distance east of Jerusalem. So it was about 900 meters. And 900 meters makes a lot of sense to us as Americans. So I'll say that it is about 0 0.55 miles. And so it was considered the outer limit of the eastern side of Jerusalem. 
And so where they were near the summit of the Mount of Olives on the southeast side, it was about 300 feet higher than the Temple Mount and about 100 feet higher than the Hill of Zion. So there's a remarkable panoramic view of the city. And so if you think about where they were and what Jesus was looking at, knowing everything that was to come, this is where he was setting up the scene for the things that were to take place. So they've come 16.5 miles from Jericho, Jesus knowing what he was going to Jerusalem to do. And now just a mere half mile away, with Jerusalem likely overflowing with what many estimate would be as many as 2 million people in the city for the Passover. So the first aspect that I think Matthew paints of Jesus as king is the fact that he's humble. So Jesus does something unusual that we really don't see or read of him doing in other places. He asks for a ride. And just as everything else that happened in Jesus' life and everything else, everything was under Jesus' control. His two disciples were to go into the village immediately in front of them, and they would, knew, and they would immediately find a donkey and a colt. And so they would untie them, they were to bring them back to Jesus. And, and Jesus anticipated that someone would say something to them, said, if anyone says anything to them, say, the Lord has need of them. Now, a lot of commentaries go really, really deep into this, much further than they probably should, but it's, most of them say it's pretty safe to say that this region of Bethany, where he had raised Lazarus and where Mary and Martha lived, they were probably very familiar with him and likely knew who they were talking about when they said the Lord has need of them and would gladly consent to him taking this donkey and the colt. Mark and Luke both record that there was interaction with the owners, and, and the permission was immediately granted for them to take them. Now, if you're not familiar with colts, they're male donkeys that are less than four years of age. And there's also a lot of uh, debate. It's, if you read Matthew, where it says they put their, um, Jesus um, sat on them, there's debate, it's kind of a silly debate to me, but whether Jesus rode one animal or two animals. Um, I think the most plain reading would be um, that he sat on the colt, which is what was prophesied and what he would normally ride. And it was just referring to the coats being placed on the animals. But most of the people who know things about donkeys, which I, which I don't, uh, say that it was not uncommon, especially for a colt that had never been ridden, to have its mother go with it to help keep the colt calm as it was being ridden. And especially colts that, would, that hadn't been ridden were often, often reserved for a special use sometimes for a king or for some type of dignitary. And this cult was about to ride through a lot of noise, so it would make sense that the mother was there with it to help keep it calm. And Matthew's recounting a prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 makes the humility of Jesus as king very clear. And it's a clear messianic reference that Jesus is fulfilling. But if we look at John's account, he says the disciples didn't quite see the significance of the moment at the time in which it was happening but it was something that they understood and that they recalled after Jesus had been resurrected and glorified. Verse 5, which is a quote from Zechariah 9.9, says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If Jesus had wanted to make an even more triumphal entry, he certainly could have, could have chosen something other than a lowly donkey. Now, reading through the, the chapters before and after this, there's something that stuck out to me in, in Matthew 20 that I want to care, that I want to contrast Jesus's character of humility with those of his disciples. And if you're able to turn to it, in Matthew 20, 17 through 28, it reads, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, came up with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So just right before this happened, right before this scene, right before he's making this entry, he told his disciples exactly where they were going, exactly what he was going to do, and exactly what was going to happen to him. Yet they still didn't get it, as it records so many times. Their minds were filled with with aspects of the grandeur of the kingdom and who was going to be able to sit on his right hand and on his left hand when Jesus took the throne that he would. But Jesus, being the humble king, knew his role as servant that he came to earth to fulfill. And he remained that humble servant king right up until the very end, even in the giving of his own life. Now, all around him, he's being celebrated, as he rightfully should be by those who have believed in him. Those are those who are his followers who believed in him as Messiah. The laying of garments and branches on the ground was a customary sign of of honor and respect that was often reserved and given to a king. And Jesus certainly was a king. They're worshiping and praising him with messianic language, which is undoubtedly, people would recognize as the son of David. Hosanna does come from language in, in, in the Hillel Psalms, especially chapter 118, Hoshea, having a sense of saving or deliverance. One who comes in the name of the Lord, meaning that this person represents the wishes, the interests, and the character of the Lord. In the highest meaning to, to fill and raise that praise to the, to the actual uttermost limits that it could possibly be. All of these things apply to Jesus as king. And Jesus, up to this point, both in the teaching and in the things that he did and the signs and miracles, certainly made it known who he was, specifically to the twelve, that he was the Messiah, but that his kingdom was not of this earth, at least not yet. The accolades and those following him certainly attracted attention from people as as other pilgrims were making their way into Jerusalem and as they came closer. And there certainly could have been a more regal entry for a king. But Jesus entered exactly as he wanted, exactly as he had taught and how he had lived. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I love how he describes himself. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. 2 Corinthians, Paul describes Christ as this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty 
might become rich. So Jesus as the humble servant king. Second, the picture that Matthew is painting of Jesus is that he is a king of peace. The evidence of this peace, if we go back to Zechariah 9 and read verse 9 in context, we see a contrast in between verses 9 and verses 10. So Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then verse 10, I'll take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And look at this contrast of a king. This king will be one on a humble donkey compared to the chariots and the war horses. He's specifically coming in on this lowly animal. One doesn't come out to fight war horses and chariots on a lowly animal. But he's not coming to wage war. He's coming to bring peace as only he can bring. This doesn't just show his humility. It shows his purpose and his character and his purpose of bringing peace to the nations. Now, kings don't ride colts or donkeys very often, and they definitely don't ride them into war. They ride horses, and horses that are as regally and gallantly dressed as those, as the king that's on their back. We do read in the Old Testament, there are times where kings would ride a donkey or a colt when the purpose was, that had been reserved for them, especially when there was to be a peaceful transfer of power. The most known of those occasions was in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, specifically verse 33, where Solomon was named as king of Israel when David anointed him over his other son, Adonijah. And he rode a donkey to symbolize peace and in coming into the city. And during that same event, people laid down their cloaks and other, other branches from trees on the ground for Solomon to ride on as they rejoiced as the king was coming back in to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus specifically asked for a colt and a donkey. He could have asked for a horse, but that would have sent a very different message to the crowd in Jerusalem. Nothing threatening, threatening rides on a donkey, either in that time or today. But why is it significant that Jesus as king rode on an animal that symbolizes peace? Because that is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was riding in Jerusalem to start a chain of events that would lead to his death, but our peace and our peace with God. We know his name's Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. But I love what Paul writes in Colossians 1. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body by his flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12, 
Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I love this phrase, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and members of the household of God. He was the Messiah, but not the Messiah that all expected. It wasn't about the conquest and overthrow of the Roman government. It was about the king, the Messiah, the Savior, who is riding into the city to conquer a very different foe. Christ, the Messiah and king, was fighting a foe that separated us from God. So he rode a donkey into Jerusalem in peace to become our peace for us, by bringing us back to God. His enemy wasn't the religious establishment. His enemy was the sin and death. And that is what makes it his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, to bring peace between God and man in only a way that Jesus Christ could do. The final thing we see that Matthew paints as Jesus as king is one is being steadfast. Now, Matthew leaves us with an interesting juxtaposition gosh, can't talk, juxtaposition. There were crowds in front of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, and there were the crowds with him and behind him that were praising him. Those in front, as he entered the gates of Jerusalem, asked, who is this? Those who were with him, who other chapters describe as the multitude of his disciples, cheerfully answered, this is Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And we're told that the whole city was kind of stirred up by this scene. What type of prophet was this? Was he one that had been foretold and the one that they had waited on? Or was this just some local hero from the region of Galilee that no one cares about Nazareth and that the natives of Jerusalem wouldn't have given much thought about? Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem before, but his greatest signs and most of his teaching was done in the region of Galilee. So there are likely those actually wondering who Jesus was. But prophet was the highest honor that this crowd could bestow on Jesus as they were rejoicing around him. So I think to put aside the saying about the fickleness of the crowd that celebrated his entry into Jerusalem and those who called for his death on Friday is one that is not accurate. All of the Gospels distinguish the followers of Christ that praised him as he approached Jerusalem from those in the city. In fact, Luke makes it clear that it was his larger group of disciples that were rebuked by the Pharisees upon their entry for what they were saying. It's as if the entry into the eastern gate of the city of Jerusalem and this event would light the spark of what we know as Holy Week and end with his resurrection. And this entry into Jerusalem and this confrontation that would come came with the knowledge that it would be to his death. Yet he did not waver and remained steadfast in his purpose as he entered into Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him. Even as he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, "'Not my will be done,' but yours. And Christ, as perfect humanity, 
and full deity could have walked away from what laid before him. But he didn't. His steadfast love for you and me took him to the cross to take our sin upon himself, for our depravity met his divinity. And now he is exalted and waiting to rule over a new heaven and earth, where all that is wrong will one day be made right. Hebrews 12 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, in looking at this of Jesus, what are we to make of these things about him? Jesus being humble, of Jesus being peace, of Jesus being steadfast. How are we to follow him in that? Philippians 2 answers that for us quite well. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But the steadfastness of our King will bring about his entrance again one day into Jerusalem. This time not on a donkey, but in a manner befitting the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This time on a white horse to finally conquer Satan and rule and reign forever. And we get a picture of this in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses." And this indeed is the picture of our King, our God who will reign forever and ever, the one who loves us with an everlasting love, who humbled himself to bring about peace between man and God and was steadfast in his purpose in doing so. By any earthly standards, this was not a, this was a not so triumphal entry. A person on a donkey with people laying down clothes and branches and then meeting people who didn't quite know who he was. But for those of us who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, we can rejoice in this entry and see the humility and lowliness that came to bring us peace with God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he fulfilled what only he could do uh, to bring peace for him becoming our peace, to take the sin that was ours and bring, take that upon himself. Thank you that we are forever saved by the one who loved us, by the one who holds us secure. I pray that as we start this week, I pray that we would not get distracted by all the activities and, and things that tend to happen around Easter, 
but that we would look to you and that we would consider the one who endured such suffering on our behalf. Again, we love you and we praise you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.